Hey listeners, I'm Adam, and this is Can I Ask You a Question, a podcast where anyone is welcome to join me for an episode to share their thoughts on a topic of their choice. I'm looking forward to hearing new opinions and perspectives, and hopefully becoming a bit more open-minded along the way. If you're interested in joining me for a future episode, feel free to check out the sign-up link in this episode's description. This episode is brought to you by the Everyday App. Technically, this is an ad, but the Everyday app has honestly been super helpful for me, and I wouldn't partner with a company if I didn't genuinely believe in the product. So, what does the app do? It basically helps you track your habits so that you can see your progress over time. There's a common business saying, what gets measured gets managed. Like I said, it usually applies to businesses, keeping track of things like their sales and customer satisfaction, but I think it's just as relevant for personal goals too. It sounds like a simple concept for an app, but I've personally found it to be super effective in helping create new habits. The app lets you add whatever habits you're currently working on building. For me right now, some of those include reviewing my to-do list each day uh, so that I stay on top of the things I want to get done. Another one is going to the gym, and another one is limiting my time on Twitter to five minutes a day. The app lets you add three habits for free, so you can see if you find it helpful. If you soon realize you want to track more than three habits like I eventually did, the paid version lets you track unlimited habits and has other cool features, and it's pretty good value in my opinion. There's a link in the episode description that gets you 10% off. All right, let's jump into today's conversation. Hi. Yuli. Adam. How's it going? Good to see you. (laughs) (laughs) How you doing? I'm doing freaking phenomenal the last few months have been an excellent time in my life and it's just been you know tumultuous in its own little lively ways but generally nothing but uphill so i'm just doing great glad to hear what have, what have you been up to well i've uh i spent almost the last three months living at the willow monastic academy so uh, it basically means sharing a home with five folks who i deeply care about um and engaging in a few Buddhist practices uh, daily, like meditation for two hours and some exercise and some group meals and chanting. Uh, And so it's just been treating me really well. I feel healthy and connected to people I care about and working hard to do the things that I think are right. (laughs) Cool. Is there there a lot of meditation? Yeah, absolutely. So it's two hours a day. Um, plus, plus some other periods of practice that are different than sitting down, but are still considered types of meditation. So you might call it something like four hours a day, depending on how you classify meditation. Got it. And like, how do you, did you have a lot of experience with meditation before? Actually, basically none. (laughs) (laughs) I spent the first, uh, probably 20 days just learning how to sit still. That was very hard for me. (laughs) That part scares me. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's still not perfectly easy. There's still a little bit of tension and pain occasionally, depending on the particular sitting style that I choose that day. Um, sometimes it's effortless. Sometimes I I feel differently. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm I'm glad you've been enjoying it. I first heard about it, I think, from Colin, and everyone just yeah. seems to really enjoy it. So I'm gonna look into it more. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good time. I welcome that. Um, but Adam, how have you been? Uh, it's been a while since we talked. It's been a while. Uh, I've been good, thank you. Um, trying to make the most of quarantine and work from home life. Uh, it feels like pace, like life has slowed down a bit, which is really nice. Mm. Um, I got a new puppy recently, which is exciting. <laughs> That's what's new with me. Oh, that feels warm. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But to to the subject, uh, the the topic of today's conversation, um, uh, yeah, I'm excited to chat about Neuralink. Anything anything Elon Musk related, I'm always excited <laughs> to chat about. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. So, I know I know you already put a couple comments in in kind of the Google Doc with the questions, but uh, do you mind expanding on um, what you what you kind of spoke about around your thoughts on if we should welcome brain machine interfaces like Neuralink. Yeah, happily. Um, 
Before that, I'm wondering if it's okay to take a minute to set some context about my background for any listeners that might be curious totally. just to see who is this person? Why are you thinking <laughs> on the subject? Um, so I'll just say that my, my background is in law and psychology. So I have a little bit of familiarity with some of the basic concepts and some of the biological intricacies that are going to be relevant to this subject matter. Um, but I actually don't have any experience working with any uh, brain machine interface development companies. Um, or in fact, that much biotech experience in general. Uh, so I'm coming at this mostly from a personal interest as someone who just sort of noticed that um, a couple of social factors were intersecting in a very interesting way a couple of years ago and then said, oh, wow, I think brain machine interfaces really are on the rise. I think they're coming. I should start paying attention to this. And then now it's been a couple of years where I've sort of kept an eye on it as I've continued about my own other work. And so here I am with a little bit, uh, a little bit of knowledge to share and a little bit of interest in the in the subject matter. <clears throat> cool. So you've been kind of thinking about it for a couple of years. Yeah. Since, since in 2015, I realized that AI uh, improvements have created a market for improving, um, have created a market for di diagnostic technologies that can tell you what's happening inside of a human brain and be able to predict what's happening. Um, because it used to be that you could run a prediction algorithm on one person uh, after getting some base training data, and then you could figure out what's happening in that person's brain. So if yeah. you happen to develop a piece of machinery that could influence what's going to happen in that person's brain, um, then that would just be useful for that one person. But as AI sort of hit the scene in about 2015, I think it really like deeply entered this area as far as I was aware, uh, I realized that, oh, wow, now we can actually extrapolate to to groups of individuals in a really high fidelity manner in a way that might uh, might make sense given the sort of like safety and regulatory landscape we have. And so we can actually now start building technologies that are going to, um, yeah, uh, shape people's brains in a way that's predictable and commercially viable or closer to being commercially valuable now. And where where has most of your kind of learning been around this topic like for me are you familiar with wait but why the, the yeah blog? that's how i that's how i learned about it that okay, blog same. post is amazing <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so yeah that's that's been it for me pretty much and then also i tuned in when uh musk made kind of the first announcement i guess about Neuralink. i think he did like an hour or two hour kind of press conference just talking about what the future of it mm -hmm. might hold uh, and it's it's like it's just mind blowing to me. Um, so no, I'm curious. I'm curious. Like, what's your at a high level? Like, how do you think? Like, how should we think about welcoming this new tech? Um, and like, how should we feel about like the the pace of of change and development? So I have this. Uh, I have a several layer thought coming up for me. So I'm just going to write something down real quick here. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, okay. So the short form of it is that we should be welcoming of this technology for the sole reason that it is extremely dangerous and that welcoming is the only way for us to be responsible about the threats that it presents given that the technology is coming no matter what we do, as far as I can currently tell. Got it. So when you when you say it's coming no matter what we do, right. um, like, I'm just trying to think. I, some people might say something like, well, aren't we the ones building it? Can't we, like, just... It, let's, say, let's say we're certain or, like, close to certain that it's going to have bad, bad consequences. Uh-huh. Like, couldn't we couldn't we choose to to not work towards it, or, or were you saying like there might be like bad actors or individuals who are still gonna pursue it? So we might as well um, like try to try to keep it open, kind of like open AI's concept, I guess. Yeah, nice question. So um, I definitely wouldn't fall into the camp of someone who sort of points at uh, some individuals and says, look, we have bad apples, therefore we have a problem. I'm more in the camp, uh, much more in the camp of someone who says, 
we have a set of systems that are interacting together to determine an enormous amount of human behavior at this time. So while individuals may have strong incentives to say that we want to reduce risk in a particular area of technological development like this one, um, that's actually not the determinative factor of whether or not we move forward with things. Um, and this is mostly based on the fact that individuals rely on an enormous amount of infrastructure for their daily life, which we do not have the expertise in order to understand, navigate, or control. So because we are so deeply embedded inside the sort of like mesh of infrastructure that uh, creates sort of the Western style of living that, for example, you and I are experiencing right now, um, we are actually already in a system, uh, you, we're already behaving in a way uh, that has very indirect effects uh, on systems. Uh, and this is kind of by design uh, and by accident. So part of it is by design in the sense that like you don't want people to really quickly be able to disentangle um, uh, a culture and an infrastructure that's helping to support the thriving of the human race. So that's actually, that's important to just want to have in place and not have people, you know, be able to change that too easily. And then the by accident part is sort of the, it's an emergent property of the incentive landscape. It's like multipolar traps. Because we live in a competitive, um, competitive landscape, because we use capitalism uh, to sort of allocate resources, uh, people, continuously systemically find themselves in a position where they have to uh, race other people for things um, in order to create the thing that they truly believe is most valuable. So without any malice per se in their hearts, uh, people are essentially finding themselves in a competitive landscape, uh, which means that as a byproduct of the competition um, and the lack of information sharing and coordination, people end up prioritizing things that get them ahead there and then deprioritizing some other values. And we and those tend to be these things we call negative externalities, uh, which like in this case includes like the risk of what happens when we use this technology in you know X domain. What happens to dating when we have uh, the ability to be telepathic or something? <laughs> uh, right? Like we don't know, we have no idea actually. It's, or I mean, maybe I'm speaking a little too soon. Maybe some people are thinking about it, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. So. All that to say is that the system of, uh, there are some good reasons uh, why we have a, a system where change isn't uh, available to individuals or even like large collectives of individuals if those individuals basically um, aren't embedded in the right systems themselves. Uh, and then there are some systems that, and then there's some reasons that are more accidental. That's sort of, you might have heard the term Moloch if you've ever visited the uh, Less Wrong discussion forum. That's very I have popular it. there. Okay, that's okay. I won't. I won't try to describe it because other people do it much more justice than I could. <laughs> uh, but I'll basically say that there is a momentum to the institutions of the world um, that, cr because of this rivalrous dynamic that I've just alluded to, um, that then creates a systemic uh, negative externalities systemic increase in negative externalities over time. Um, and so that that is a thing that just like, it's, it's just a clear example of how these, we have these systems that we don't actually want to be functioning the way they're functioning, but individuals, even if most of them agree that we shouldn't be doing this, don't seem to be able to change them. And that's because the incentive landscape itself and the systems that we function in are like much more powerful than we give them credit for in daily conversation. Does and that are make you, sense? Just, just one following. <laughs> okay. are, are, are you saying, is that like a good thing in your mind or a bad thing that like, even if the majority of people want a system to change, they, they can't hmm. necessarily? Um, yeah, I think it's absolutely got elements of both good and bad. Okay. Um, I think my net gut reaction is that we are currently in a time where more change of certain kinds is just really important. Um, so if you think about it, it's like in any, any given time period, you're gonna have, I'm, I'm just gonna make up a number right now. 
let's say a hundred different variables of the system, and then maybe you know thirty of them might need change at one point, or sixty of them might need change at another point, and then the degree to which they need change uh, is something that I'm pointing to here now. So I'm not sure exactly how many variables need change. I know a bunch of stuff is changing already, no matter what we do. So if anything, we might it might actually be good to slow down the level of change slightly so we can be more responsible about it. Um, and th at the same time, there are some variables that if those variables don't change, we're really in trouble. Um, there are some like world scale problems and this, this idea of <clears throat> we have an institutional, uh, institutionally embedded rivalrous uh, competitive landscape that causes people to not be able to sort of like be more moral. <laughs> uh, that that is the thing that needs to change. If that doesn't change, then climate devastation, right? Or insert other X risk. <laughs> okay, so right. just so I just to make sure I understand the the rivalry you're you're talking about. Um, so, like, let's say, like uh, a person or a group of people say, you know what, we should slow down uh, our progress on brain machine interfaces because it faces the these risks. Am I understanding it correctly that you're saying like there will be other people who decide that we want to get to the finish line quicker um, and are gonna not listen and move forward? I'm I'm just trying to understand like how um, what you're trying to say around rivalry and how it relates to this. Okay. So I'm gonna one of the things I'm gonna do is I'm gonna draw I'm going to make this a little grayer uh, than, it, than it's been phrased in the question, as in I'm going to suggest that there are varying degrees to which the technologies we create affect human psychology and decision making. And brain machine interfaces are like really hype and uh, sort of salient in, in that regard. We can say, look, they're really going to change humans. Look at this thing. You're literally putting a chip in the brain. Wow, yeah. what's that going to do to me? Yeah. Um, but actually, almost everything we do at an institutional level has an enormous effect on human psychology and decision making. So I'm going to suggest that we, no matter what, are going to create technologies that are going to affect human psychology and decision making. Yeah. Um, now, this technology really does pose some unique threats. Um, we, yeah. And so, I won't go into those at the moment, but I'll just say, uh, yeah, hold on. Actually, I'll just pause there. Is, does that answer the a crucial piece of your question, or do, what do you want to tack on top of that? Um, I'm try I'm trying to understand. Like, and sorry if you already said it, and I'm and I'm having trouble following. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm just trying to understand how. I get in my mind, I get how it would be hard to get everyone to agree that we should slow the pace of change uh, and development towards this if if that if we think that's the right thing to do. Um, but I'm just trying to understand like why it's not possible, what how the the rivalrous nature that you talk about like prevents it entirely from being possible. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. i I actually lost that thread a little bit in my mind. Oh, okay. so I'm glad you no I'm glad you brought it back up. No problem. okay. Uh, so there is a caveat about, you know, people doing different things and that being really good for the resilient survival of humankind, but I'm going to set that aside, um, and just That's a good say, point. That's a good point. um, and just answer the question to say that, um, it's more like slowness of progress in this particular domain with this particular technology is a thing that not everybody values. Uh, it's a thing that's actually optional. Um, and so even if a bunch of people uh, decide that we want this particular technology to be developed slower, um, insofar as we have the freedom to choose what we want to develop, uh, and many people have that freedom, and we have a system of incentives that says you should create products that provide value and look we have the technology to create a product that provides this value and people really are suffering and we can alleviate that um, there's going to be a strong natural ethical inclination to go in that direction totally and when that ethical inclination comes up against this majority of viewpoint that says no let's slow down we should be careful um, 
they're not necessarily going to have a good faith conversation where they come to an agreement together about how they should proceed because that's not how the decisions are made. The decisions are made by the incentive landscape, not by the sort of conscious morality grounded discussion of the individuals uh, making decisions, unfortunately. Um, I know that sounds a little pessimistic actually, but um, that's, that's the overview. That's what it looks like on average. And so, it's difficult for me to describe, but I think to, you know, to say like, why isn't it possible that everybody would slow this down? I think actually that that is possible. I just think it's very unlikely. That's very unlikely because the incentives are create products that help people who are suffering. This is a product that's going to help people who are suffering. And on top of that, there's something like this fixed pie mindset about the world. The world has limited attention. The world has limited effort. The world has limited talent. The world has limited permutations of like how to put those things together. Um, we are in competition for that based on the economic model we currently have. Because of this, finding an opportunity to gain a large amount of money is actually a way to do a lot of good potentially. Even if that money is gained by doing something very mediocre or medium on the scale of like, you know, on a morality scale. Yeah. Um, you can actually, by having more resources, you get to choose how to distribute those resources. So if you happen to be a person who's like quite competent in uh, being able to analyze sort of the broad picture landscape and interact with other information nodes, and you can get more information and synthesize it well, if you're competent in that particular way, somehow like you're just good at that uh through power and, and practice and etc then it makes sense to try to accumulate more resources because then you could use those for the thing that actually is more effectively doing what is good um and so that's how the market force compels someone to act on it isn't isn't to get more money it's to get resources so that they can determine the course of future civilization where the more um, sort of power and insight you have, the more compelling it is to think that, oh, good, I actually should determine the course of future civilization. So I am going to go gather those resources. And I think I'm going to spend these resources better than the next person who would get it if I didn't do this. So I'm going to go ahead and build this company that's going to capture this large market segment. Yeah. <laughs> so... I like a lot of the stuff you said um, and a lot of it resonated with me. The stuff you said around, I mean, ideally you want, you want people to have freedom. So if, if you're going to, if you want people to have freedom, then there's going to be people who are going to have different values and disagree. And to your point, there are a lot of promising um, aspects to this technology, being able to fix a lot of brain related illnesses and issues. Um, so I'm just trying to think, I guess in my mind, like I view this as potentially an existential risk. It could be of sorts. And I'm just wondering like how, like how should the world like think about like balancing the, the great potential of it with like the downsides and like, like, what is that balance? How do we figure out if we have the right balance? Like, like I'd like to, yes, there's going to be maybe outliers that disagree, but like, I'm wondering like, what, what should the, like, as, yeah, just try to understand, at least for myself, like, well, how should I be thinking about this? Um, and I, I, I assume there's, there's similar stuff around like, like bio risk and like a lot of the work that's being done there is to help uh, solve, solve and cure diseases and, uh, and stuff like that. So it's similar in, in that sense. So anyways, I'll, I'll stop there. Like, what are your thoughts? Like, do you view this as an existential risk? If so, like, how do you mitigate it? I don't know. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's gorgeous. Yeah. So obviously I'm not going to do this question justice, but I'm honored to give it a shot anyway. So thank you for asking. I mean, um, we all, we all can just try to do our part and like, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Talking about it is it feels like a good start. 
I think I think that's that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So I'll say that it's probably useful to think about it as uh, what would how do I as an individual make sense of it? Because you might be activating different sense making algorithms and intuitions you have that are quite valuable when you think from an individual standpoint. But it's also really important to take that and then not not sit there, but port that over to the uh, global discussion of what should we do as a species because we as a species are going to have some different constraints and different uh, functions that are going to yeah, make the question a different type of question even than what happens when we ask about this as an individual. So I'll touch on the individual piece briefly and then I'll go on a longer rant to talk about my current ideas about this, about it from a global perspective. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah, and at least to me, it feels like individual views, they do influence. I guess it depends on how uh, how big of a following you have. But even if you're <laughs> you're an average yeah. person like me, you still, you know, you have influence amongst your friends and family and just sharing the ideas. Yeah, I mean, like, individuals absolutely matter. And we... It's funny because, you know, my probably the point I want to hammer in most over this conversation is something like systems matter more than we give them credit for. And yet at the same time, I find myself tempted to basically say individuals also matter more than we give them credit for. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, absolutely. There's a ton of small feedback effects we can expect to have if we're in, in right alignment with uh, sort of our intuitions and our immediate environment. Uh, that, that's actually quite powerful. So um, how should an individual make sense of whether or not they should embrace the technology? Well, I'd say the first thing to watch out for is that uh, you, you probably don't want to come at it from a competitive landscape um, alone, right? You don't want to default to competition. So we probably uh, grew up in a world where <clears throat> What we want to do is become more powerful, capable beings so we can accumulate resources and make decisions about how those are used, um, which is like kind of like yay from a liberal humanist perspective because, you know, you all your nice feelings are satisfied and you get less negative feelings because you have more power. And bec because you trust yourself as an individual, you're like, that's a high value, so I'm just going to get more resources to do that. So that equals good. Um, so currently... You know, we're very tempted to basically say, yeah, I'm just going to go become more capable in competition with others so I can maximize these things that I want. And this optimization mindset, I think, is actually like a problem. I think that if we as individuals come at technology from an optimization mindset, we are necessarily going to run into the limits of the human understanding and imagination about the world uh, and then end up over optimizing for this competitive thing and then accidentally sacrificing all these other important things. So maybe a, as a quick abstract, just to ground what I'm saying, a uh, quick example. Uh, maybe if everybody's taking Adderall because they want to get better grades so they can have better lives, because uh, there's some logic chain that, there that says better grades, more money, more decision, uh, you know, more free time, better life. Uh, then everybody eventually is taking Adderall. And then because the grades are, because people are graded sort of in relation to each other, uh, over some time period, the demands actually go up because now the new standard is students on Adderall, not students off Adderall. So now everybody's taking Adderall and then still nobody's ahead. So they've all kind of sacrificed this thing of like, you know, this ability to not take Adderall. Um, and now they're still no longer ahead. And now they need to do something else to gain this competitive edge. And, you know, the thing is, basically, these individuals, uh, it's hard for them to predict that the systemic effects of them doing this individually beneficial action, like I will take Adderall today, I will do better on this test, that this can actually have this feedback effect of like creating a worse environment for everyone. This tragedy of the commons kind of thing happening. Um, so I would say there are other ways of thinking about individual decision making we can actually think about like what are the things that resonate deeply and make sense uh, to me and the community and to the present and to the future of both of those, of me and the community. And if we try to look at it from those 
four questions instead of the one question of like, what's going to benefit me in the future, I guess, or benefit me now possibly, two questions, then we're actually much better off because we can, we can let those questions like check each other's shit, <laughs> essentially. Um, so I'd say as an individual, if you're thinking about brain-machine interface technology, should I embrace it? Should I advocate for it? What am I going to do? Should I use it? Um, the first step is, okay, don't do the thing that's going to give you social signaling and get you popularity and make you better at taking tests. That that automatic knee-jerk response is bad. Don't do that. <laughs> you know, you can eventually take the same action as that knee-jerk response, but doing it considerately makes all the difference because then all these subtle things about how you do this are going to impact the people around you. And the people around you are going to, instead of picking up, oh, this is a competitive landscape, we should all just take more Adderall than each other. Um, instead of that, they're going to basically say, oh, look, this person is making a considered decision about what they think is right. I, you know, That's actually pretty good. Maybe, maybe I can do more of that. Um, I, I understand that's a little vague, but that's, that's what's in my mind when it comes to individuals thinking about it. I really liked the Adderall example. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so, okay, the, the questions that are like top of mind for me are, yeah. you know, like, yeah. So, how should we as a society decide um, how to how to regulate this, so to restrict freedoms or not? And then how, like, how, like, yeah, do we want do we want a slow progress uh, or not? Like, I don't even know how to think about this. Okay. I'm definitely going to say slowing progress or not is a, is a mistake. It's not a good way of thinking about it. It's, that's absolutely not. Because then we get into, A, it's a dichotomy between one or the other. So we have to recognize that because this is a real debate, because people are arguing over, like, progress yay, progress nay, they're both representing some piece of reality. They both have value to offer to our collective, mutually beneficial coexistence. So the, they're both trying to say something really important, and the other side should be listening. Um, so if we get into a dichotomy that says one or the other, we're naturally screwing over the ability to cooperate and coordinate well. So, so the first thing we should do is step away from the dichotomy that is in contention publicly uh, for an extended period of time. Some dichotomies just happen for a second and then people realize, oh no, that was just a mistaken way of thinking about it. Or one side realizes they're wrong or something. But if something sticks around for a while, like progress yay versus progress nay, we got to flag that right away as being like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, people can't resolve this argument. It means they're not thinking about it the right way. So we shouldn't use this dichotomy either. But that's not, but, but I can still try to uh, share some, sorry, I, I see you might have a thought. There. Yeah, I was just, I'm just trying to wrap my head around what you're saying like to me let me know if i'm not thinking about it correctly but like don't we need to make decisions on um like i i would like ideally everyone to ha kind of have an open mind understand the, the the potential benefits and risks and as a result i would hope that it's not like yeah. super that no one's 100 percent confident that they have the right answer and that we kind of work collectively to figure out um, like how much regulation there should be and stuff like that. Like I think of, I think of today. I guess the decisions maybe being made around like a COVID vaccine and whether to um, like. I think like today. I, I don't under. I'm not an expert at all in this in this space, but um, I guess like the different hoops that you have to go through to bring a vaccine to market there's good reason for some of those hoops and i think there's questions around like you know should we speed it up like how should we think about this to me it's similar and i guess i'm i'm trying to understand when you say this isn't the way we should be thinking about it i'm, I'm having trouble grasping that mm. yeah i think in the context of the vaccine discussion which unfortunately i know very little about <laughs> i haven't Same. really been keeping Same. up in that uh, but i would say it on instinct, based on just the what you've been saying here, that actually sounds more reasonable, and that that is a good way of framing the discussion potentially, because you're making a practical decision in some context where people are quite clear on what the values and context are. Maybe okay, um, if if that's right, then good. Um, 
the reason I was sort of saying that progress, yay or nay, isn't the effective way to think about it is because we want to simplify messages uh, to people who are outside of the context to try to get some sort of participation, consent, and information sharing going on. So that's really important. And so we do want to broadcast these messages and have public discourse um, on a simplified level, but uh, that on a level that just doesn't uh, require them to know all the context and all the, you know, yeah, just all, all the rich depth that they could uh, potentially uh, want to dive into. Um, but the thing is, you we can't simplify things past the past the point at which they have fidelity to the actual thing we're working on. And actually, I think the progress yay or nay simplification goes way beyond. It's way too simple. It actually doesn't contain in it the thing that we're actually interested in anymore. It's like so far away from the discussion that it's like a blue or red kind of thing. I, I don't know. I'm okay. finding it hard to describe. But. No problem. So to you, what's an example of like an important decision to be made related to this, maybe? Mm. Um, yeah, we can we can say are startup ecosystems responsible for building better relationships with the regulators early on? Because the current incentive landscape is something like startups are pretty lean and they basically talk to regulators when they have to. Yeah. Larger corporations who might want to be doing their own R&D uh, can talk to er regulators earlier on, but they're quite powerful. And so the conversation can sometimes be a little asymmetric. So the larger corporations aren't necessarily discussing things with regulators on a let's collaborate uh, mindset. More like they're just saying like, okay, how do we get around these issues? How do we get around this red tape to make sure we're doing what we want? That's obviously, I'm obviously generalizing. And I think that doesn't say much about the people. I'm describing a general trend from one perspective. So I don't want uh, people who hear this to be like, oh, he really hates uh, large corporations. No, no, I don't, I don't know. And hates people who work there. I'm like, no, I don't think that. Um, but so one decision you could make uh, is who bears responsibility for sharing data about risks early when it comes to uh small startups where there seems to be some promise of like they could actually pivot they don't have to develop a product in a particular way they could actually choose how to develop that product they still have a bunch of flexibility in what they're going to do uh, because they're early um and the current trend is they don't speak to regulators uh, and they don't really take into account lots of potential negative externalities until they have to that's kind of like the culture of being lean. And so we could ask the question of like, who's responsible for this? Is it regulators? Well, uh, yeah, so that's one important question, I think, okay. to, to answer what you were asking. Uh, and I think you were trying to say, okay, Yuli, what's one important question? And do we, is there a version of that that's too simple? Was that a part of your question or am I making this up? What do you mean by too simple? It's like, can we bastardize this question by putting it on social media? And then can we understand what it means to bastardize a question by using this as an example? By oversimplifying I'm not, it. I'm not sure. Not I'm not sure if that's what I meant. I'm not, not okay, entirely good. yeah, what I meant. Then, yeah. <laughs> good. I'll set that thought aside. <laughs> um I was gonna ask you, do you how do you view differences between like using this sort of tech? Um for I'd call it like treatment versus enhancement. Mm. Yeah, nice. Uh, so I'm a little skeptical that I'm going to have a great answer, but I'm going to give it a shot anyway. So that's okay. my signpost for this one. Yeah, no problem. Uh, for one, just from the wait but why post that we both read, uh, basically ever since then I've had this idea that they're related. That treatment and enhancement are on the same spectrum. And treatment is something that has uh, different moral arguments in support of it so that you can get more sort of like 
public backing and and stuff. And, but enhancement is basically the same kind of thing. You're still saying, I want to increase human welfare. I want to decrease human suffering. I want to make people's lives better. Uh, and it's just it just needs different arguments to support it. But it's essentially trying to do the same thing. Um, I think there are people who would just disagree with me pretty heavily here. And they would just say, no, no, no. Uh, adding good to the world isn't the same thing as taking away bad. Um, I'm not sure I can address that competently right now. So I'm not going to. <laughs> no worries. I, I agree with uh, everything you said there. Um, okay. And yeah, I used to view them as very separate. And maybe it was the Wait But Why article as well, but I definitely agree with you that I view them as more and more of the same. And at least in my mind, maybe the difference is treatment is stuff that the world, that most people consider to be problems today versus enhancement. I think they're also underlying actual problems, but people don't view them as problems generally. So like an example that comes to mind is like yeah. aging, right? Like if you if you came up with something that made people live to a thousand, I think people would consider that enhancement, not treatment, because no one really considers like old age is kind of given as a, a, a given. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. I, I love what you're saying. I'm so on board with that. Um, I'll add this. I'll say... Actually, there are lots of enhancements that are really important because they increase our ability to treat things. And this is actually my primary interest in brain-machine interfaces. Hmm. So when we talk about, like, why is this important? What's the promise? For me, it's not the ability to stream music into your brain, as some articles saying today <laughs> about Neuralink. <laughs> um, it's the ability to increase human capacity to share and process information yeah. to make it more feasible uh, for us to do this. And, and yeah, I pretty much agree with the weight, but wise articles uh, notion that like uh, for, for the listeners, some context is Elon Musk and uh, Tim urban uh, had a conversation where Elon Musk described the goals of Neuralink as basically increasing the human bandwidth for communication um, as a way to propel the species forward. And he sort of framed the evolution of the brain and the evolution of the species in terms of these, uh, like how much stuff can you do? What kind of capacities do you have? And look, one of the big bottlenecks is communication because that's just this beautiful thing that enables culture and cooperation and sort of responsible for a lot of the cool stuff we have today as humans. And so now I want to, uh, help us break this bottleneck. I'm going to start Neuralink. That was that was kind of the simplified thought. Um, so, so I guess I'm trying to think through, and I hadn't thought of it really the way you just described it, but I think it's a, I love it, um, and that <laughs> the way you're saying is, like, maybe you could make your argument saying, hey, if you're worried about existential risks, this technology could actually help you become help us become smarter and better able to tackle some of the other existential risks. The, the weird part about it is like this itself can be a, <laughs> yeah. so like, like how do you, like, it just seems so difficult for me. Maybe it's because like, I'm not an expert at all in this field, but like, it seems to me that even if you're like, and I'm just guessing, but even if you are the smartest person in the world today, in terms of knowledge related to this, it still seems like such a hard problem to even think about, mm -hmm. like balancing, like, is this going to increase existential risk or not? So that's, I think that really gets to the core of my argument. So the quick caveat is right now, I'm not working on anything related to brain machine interfaces. I'm actually upgrading my myself the standard way, meditating <laughs> and having better relationships with people and reading and stuff. Um, but uh, I'm actually super inspired to spend far more time in this area. And it's, I'm actually on the lookout for ways to do this um, right now. And so that's just the quick caveat. And the answer that I wanted to share now was that, uh, yeah, I think for me as an individual, uh, this is absolutely an area I want to work in because of what you just said. It is both uh, an incredible opportunity and an existential risk. Hardcore, 
hardcore both. Yeah. And the thing is, I don't, I haven't come up with any arguments yet to sort of change either of those positions. I think it's still incredibly uh, powerful, and I think it it's coming no matter what, and it's going to have a bunch of risk to it. So I'm like, good. Then we absolutely should uh, go pay attention to it, because if we don't pay attention to it, then it'll become like one of those other invisible systems that we function under, and well. It's going to exert its force on human psychology and decision making anyway. The question is, how, you know, to what degree did we think about the risks ahead of time? And did, did more people have a say in it? And were we wise about it? Or was it dictated by market incentives? Because market incentives are a pain <laughs> when it comes to ethical, ethical issues. Yeah, it, it also feels like there's this issue with dealing with existential risks where um, at least to me, it just makes sense that we wouldn't care as much as we should about them because it doesn't impact us necessarily. It's going to impact maybe several generations down the line when we're potentially gone. So for that reason, like I'm incentivized to like try to progress this tech if, if the upsides of it can like help me today. So that seems to be like, at least to me, like an issue. Does that make sense? That is, yeah, that's a huge issue. It's like, um, so maybe some people are incentivized to work on it insofar as they're working quickly and in a lean way. And that's actually quite dangerous because this is an area that requires uh, more consideration because it's just so sensitive. Um, I have a hard time speaking about what other people, how other people might relate to this. So I'm, I don't know if I can make uh, any accurate generalities here, but I can say that from my experience, I'm lucky in that I'm just like generally fascinated by this. And I have this argument in my head that I'm like, oh, this is really important uh, as a way of taking away bad from the world and as a way of adding good to the world. So it's like, well, that's great. That just, that's a clear, yes, I should go spend more time here. This, this is clearly a thing that is calling my attention. So, as it stands today, like if you were to be in a position and, you know, you, let's say you come across someone who's in government, who has the ability to influence legislation and regulation here, like yeah. where do you stand? Would you, as of today, do you think you would, you'd be more likely to say to them, Hey, I think we should loosen regulation and, 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 um, allow this technology to come to market quicker or would you be more on the other side um saying you know there's a lot of risk let's slow down okay this i am pulling this almost completely out of my ass good signpost okay <laughs> now now that you you've been warned we'll proceed. um i would right now on gut instinct uh say i would like the technology to proceed uh, slower by loosening and changing regulation. You think when you say loosening regulation could slow it? Why is that? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm I'm basically suggesting that what we need is a radically different approach to the ethics uh, and and information sharing that goes into developing these kinds of technologies, because uh, the market incentives driving uh, R and D behavior right now aren't good <laughs> for technologies that are this dangerous. They're just not good enough. Um, there, are, there are too many unknowns. We'll never reduce uncertainty completely, but insofar as this is a technology that's actually really valuable for helping us solve lots of critically important problems in the world, and it seems to be aligned with our immediate uh, needs because we're actually alleviating some suffering, um, this technology is coming, and it's got good reasons for coming, so if we're going to if it's coming anyway, and we can't stop the people who are developing it, we might as well try to help them be more responsible about it. And the way to help them be more responsible about it is to take a different approach to legislation. So how does it slow down the development? Well, I think if you give people more options, they might use them. So if you give people, um, if you create sort of a regulatory environment that incentivizes information sharing and collaboration uh, for what it means to sort of work out the risks of this technology and work out um, its different applications and how people think about it and then try to create 
incentives for different kinds of corporations to work on it, like a B Corp or a co-op or I don't know, other forms of legal entities that can change the incentive landscape uh, and tweak it and explore different ways of going about this large project, then, um, then the project will probably slow down a little as people see all these new options and then say, oh, okay, let's, let's see what's going to work for us. Let's go explore these things. And that'll give them more time and more knowledge. And so, I mean, my gut says that would be a way to make us more responsible. It would also loosen regulation in the sense that by giving people more optionality, uh, I'm actually also suggesting that people to some degree be able to do more of their own sense making when it comes to safety restrictions. I'm not oh. confident about making the statement. But but that's currently my my gut statement. So let, yeah. let me know if I'm capturing what you said correctly. Mm. Um, is it something along the lines of you know you could regulate, but like people generally people don't like being told what to do, and people are going to do what they want want to do. So what's better? A better approach is like help provide them with tools and education to make it easier for them to share information and that's going to put us in a better position is that sort yeah of right on i wish i said that <laughs> <laughs> that's very very on point Thank so I, I love that approach i love that approach and i've chatted about like you know government regulation not in knurling context but in other examples and stuff like that and an example that comes to mind that's you know very different than brain machine interfaces um because I was having a, a, a conversation with a friend and we were talking about like, you know, do you like, should we ever really need laws or are laws only there because the government hasn't effectively like communicated like the, the harms and stuff like that. Um, so anyways, we, we talked about seat belts, for example, and you know, like government decided they had to mandate it um, mm. that we wear seat belts. But I think the ideal, ideal scenario is, the government educates people and tells them like, Hey, you know, like if you don't wear seatbelts, your chances of getting seriously injured are way, way worse. Um, and then you don't need the law because it's in people's best interests. So I'm trying to think where I'm going with this, but like, I guess the government decided, you know, people aren't listening to, to we're trying to educate people, but, People don't seem to care, so we feel like we have to put in the law. So I'm wondering, like, does the same apply here where, like, governments maybe try to educate and enable information sharing, but it just doesn't seem to be working, and then they feel like they have to regulate? Like, I'm curious, do you have any thoughts on that analogy? Like, I, I don't know. The seatbelt analogy? Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. Well, it's, yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting bunch of questions that I'm, I'm sort of picking up on here. Um, sort of, yeah, I, I think I'm thinking about the theory of law. I'm thinking about like, to what degree should we regulate things? Who's the regulator exactly? How much certainty must you have before taking on a certain degree of authoritarian rule? Um, those, those are the things coming up for me. Yeah. So, one thing, one thing I'll add, sorry, is, um, yeah. around the theory of law. It seems to be a, a conversation I'm having with like friends lately a lot, which has been interesting because yeah. I've been asking them like, Hey, what would you do if there was no laws to try to prove the point that, <laughs> that like most of them come up with like, Oh, maybe I'd speed a little bit more or like I'd park in place. I'm not allowed. But the point is like very few of them are actually changing their behavior very much. Like that's all they're mm -hmm. going to do. If like no laws exist. Oh, that's interesting. I would make laws. That's what I would do. <laughs> if there was no laws, I would go build in the incentive infrastructure to create uh, safety for people to continue enabling the functioning that we have. Yeah. That's literally what I would do. It would just be that's creative. more half-assed, uh, but slightly more resilient, hopefully, uh, than, than the legal infrastructure we have. And, and I would only be able to do that in my local community anyway. But but that's that's my that's the thing that was most alive for me when I heard your original question as well is like actually it's a team effort. Uh, the law is one type of regulation. Yeah. But um, social norms are an equally potent type of regulation. Um, there is a balance of power between the two that we have to carefully navigate over time. Um, and I'm not well versed enough to engage in sort of like effective public discourse on that. 
Um, but but yeah, I think I think so. The thing that came to my mind most clearly is to say, um, my theory of law is that it should be a patchwork of efforts from the various sectors of society, um, and that we need to be able to coordinate better. And that's really where the action's at. So it's not so much, again, about like more or less regulation. It's actually more about like, how do we do better regulation given where we are now? What is the purpose of regulation? It seems to be to empower people to safely go get stuff we value together. So it was like, okay, cool, let's do more of that. And then the question, you know, there's all these ancillary questions of like, which people, but we, we can't get stuck on that as much. It's important, but we can't, we can't derail the entire conversation to like group A versus group B dynamics, because that begins to lose sight of this deeper question of like, actually what we're trying to do in the first place is help people get stuff safely. Totally. Um, yeah, so that yeah. would be like a, yeah. Is it, so you have a law background, like is it is it fair to say that like law is, like regulations and laws are there only in places where like there's a failure to actually educate mm. people well um, on the harms? Yeah, I don't know if education is the only word that I would use okay. to describe the failures uh, in place. Um, and I would also basically suggest that like while they're failures from the standpoint of an optimizer who like has lots of power to change society, they're also just the current way things are. So we also don't have to necessarily be uh, as judgy about them. But to your point directly, yes, we have laws because we can't do things without laws. <laughs> That's right. literally it. Um, if we could do things without laws, we would, right. but we can't. So we use laws as the uh, next best thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> or, uh... um, but either way, either way we'd have systems. We, we'd either way have like ways of giving people certainty around behavior norms to simplify life down to a workable way that steers individuals and groups towards things that we've collectively uh, determined to be like the most effective thing overall. So either laws or social norms, but you're, we're still exerting power. We're still coercing individuals through knowledge systems, essentially. Got it, I think. <laughs> um, we're coming up on the hour. Uh, anything anything you were hoping to chat about or you thought maybe we chat about that we didn't, that we should try to cram in the last few minutes? Uh, yeah, um, cool question. <laughs> so first, this has just been great. I've really enjoyed this. Um, but let me see. Yeah, basically, I wanted to say that uh, the question is even slightly a red herring. So one of the things I did when I became interested in this is I met a bunch of neuroscientists who are working on things related to brain machine interfaces. And I just like followed them into elevators and introduced myself and stuff. And then I eventually in Toronto uh, or yeah, in Toronto. And then uh, I ended up being able to uh, host a related conference. Uh, help host a related conference. And so I asked a bunch of people who attended the conference questions. And so one of the answers that I got was really good for me. It was like, um, you know, the ethical issues we're seeing here, they're already present. We don't have to extrapolate to the future to talk about brain machine interface technology that's coming, even though that's obviously still important. We can look at the way that behavior is being manipulated now through wearable tech. You know, I mean, so that's a technology that's like here now um, so it might be really interesting to say like, oh, if you think there's a problem with brain machine interface technology as it's developing and you want to address it responsibly, um, maybe you can start thinking about the nature of that problem by looking at its parallels that are currently in existence. So I'd suggest, yeah, people who are interested in this should look at like, what are the ethics of behavior manipulation in general? Uh, and what are the market and psychological forces that, that press on this issue? And yeah, and how would you answer the question of how we do better from the individual scale, the I'm in relationship with one person scale who I love, the I'm with five people scale, I'm with a village scale, and all the way up. Cool. So that's, yeah. that's something I want to leave listeners with. I thought that was an interesting part of my journey. Cool. Yeah, they talked about that in the Wait for Why article, how like we already are sort of cyborgs in the way that we use our phones and there we do have other kind of machine implants like hearing aids and stuff like that. 
So yeah. it's it's a it's a good point. Any any books or resources or anything that come to mind related to uh, what you were describing around learning, like more about the ethics of I think you said like manipulation and like how we influence people and stuff. Uh, oh man, unfortunately, I don't have anything good that's coming to mind. I would definitely recommend readers go check out that Wait But Why article. That yeah. that was already top of mind for me. Um, it's a good starting point. Sorry, I was gonna say if you think of anything else after, you can let me know and I'll put it in the in the description. But All right. I think to your point, the Wait But Why article is so long that that's probably <laughs> enough. <laughs> oh yeah, that's perfect. You're right. Okay, good. Right there, and see see where that takes you. Cool. Thanks, Yuli. Well, it was a pleasure and it was awesome catching up. Glad to hear you're doing well. And uh, en enjoy the silent retreat. <laughs> Thank you so much for asking me questions. And I loved getting a chance to chat with you. I look forward to catching up more soon. Me too. See you, Yuli. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Can I Ask You a Question? If you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you left a rating on iTunes or Google Podcasts or wherever you're listening from so that more people like you can discover it. Also, it'd be super helpful if you'd be willing to leave some feedback on any ideas you have for improving future conversations using the link in this episode's description. Thanks again and see you next time.